Welcome to the Combat Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Peacock. To end season two with a bang, my guest today is Stuart Armstrong, who is well known in the sports science and skill acquisition community through his podcast, The Talent Equation, which is highly recommended. Stuart thinks of himself as a pracademic, a practitioner with an academic background focused on the practical application of the science of coaching to real-life coaching. We've touched on the constraints-led approach to motor learning quite a bit throughout seasons one and two, but only in a cursory sense. In this episode, Stuart walks us through more specific ways we can use the constraints-led approach to improve our martial arts training. One of the main breakthrough concepts here I want to direct your attention toward is that Stuart repositions skill development not as knowledge transfer from instructor to student, but as an adaptation to environmental stress. In other words, skill is developed in sufficiently representative practice environments the same way that muscle grows in response to progressively heavier weight loads from session to session. But in the case of martial arts skills, the load is not weight, but instead challenge to the perceptual system, i.e. your ability to read an opponent, manipulate distance, and properly time your attacks and counters, and so on. I'm extremely excited to share this interview with you. It's challenging, information-dense, and worthy of multiple listens, which is why I saved it to cap off season two. As always, if you're excited to jump in, hit the subscribe button on your podcatcher right now and enjoy the ride. So uh, for, for uh, any of my, my listening audience that doesn't know you, uh, who are you and, and what do you do? So, um, yes, Stuart Armstrong. Um, I, I guess you could probably call me a sports development professional by, by trade. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to work in the sports industry for, God, a bit too long, quarter of a century, 25 years. Um, I actually wanted to be a graphic designer, and then my, uh, my art teacher at school caught me on the field hockey pitch for the 15th time when I should have been in his class, and he said to me, you should have a career in sport, and it proved to be the best career advice I ever got. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I've been, I've been into sport all my life. Um, I actually was born with a disability born upside down and in lots of ways that's kind of shaped my, my kind of passion really, because I basically had a corrective surgery when I was a child and then I just went and got started involved in sport and by all accounts, like, you know, the physical limitations that I was left with meant that I shouldn't really have been able to compete as an able-bodied individual, a fully able-bodied individual. And I did, I did have some sort of athletic limitations, sure. but, but that, um, in many ways meant that I just had to adapt and um, so I became like really kind of like, you know, when, you're, when your 100 meter time is about 18 seconds at the age of 15, you know, you're never going to be like the fastest out there. So I wasn't blessed with speed and pace like others. So you have to become like tactically astute. So, you know, I had to think quicker. I had to move the ball quicker. I became like a playmaker because I could think ahead of everybody else. You know, I, I also became quite tactically aware and I would organize teams around me to sort of make up for my limitations in lots of ways. So that kind of took me on the journey to coaching. It was kind of a natural thing. And so when I was at university, I started coaching there and I sort of never really looked back. Um, but my, so, so I'm, I'm, I've been involved in coaching. I've done lots of, lots of coaching sort of at various different levels, international stuff, as well as, you know, kind of like national premier league types type level. Uh, nowadays I've sort of taken a step back from that because I've still got a relatively young family and all my efforts are basically into helping them hopefully enjoy the experiences of sport and physical activity. 
So I'm involved in different sports throughout the year. And then in the day job, I actually work in sports development for a national agency called Sport England. Our, our aim is to increase physical activity across across England. And my responsibility is to support the development of kind of coaches and and community leaders and volunteers and, and helping their development through all the different sports that we we work with uh, by kind of guiding, hopefully, the way that they improve coach education, coach retention, coach development, coach support packages. So I kind of like coaching, if you like. And uh, yeah, so I pretty much live and breathe the uh, that world. That's awesome. That's, that's why I really enjoy listening to your podcast because you have a perspective on... Uh, the athletes, obviously, but you also have a perspective on what goes into uh, coaching coaches how to coach better, if you can put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you you have a, a lot of different, um, really interesting perspectives on on the development of, of sports. Um, one of the, the, actually, the two things that come up on your podcast a lot are uh, um, what you call the ecological approach and also the constraints-led approach. And I was wondering if you could, um, for for uh, my audience is really, it's, a, it's combat sports, right? It's martial artists. So yeah. e- the ecological approach or ecology or anything like that is p- going to be foreign to 99.9% of all of them. So I was wondering if you could kind of uh, go over what the ecological approach is. Uh, it's interesting. Um, I seem to be spending a lot of time in the kind of combat sports space. Uh, I actually did a, a, like a community of learning session for a group of boxing coaches on um, couple of days ago oh, wow. so um uh yeah so i'm sort of <laughs> i'm in the combat sports realm quite a bit at the moment which is great so uh yeah there's a group of coaches from uh, england boxing actually who uh, who convene this community of learning so there's some, some interest in this space um uh right so how to sort of put ecological dynamics or ecological approach into constraints that approach into a uh, into a relatively short explanation. I'll do my best. As anybody who has listened to my podcast knows, I'm not the best at short explanations, but I'll, I'll do my <laughs> best. Um, I guess ecological approach basically stems from, or at least is at least in part is based on, um, I guess a viewpoint around how do human beings uh, learn to do anything? Can it sort of historically over millennia, if we go back in time into, you know, the days of you know, prehistoric times or whatever, you know, how, how do human beings learn things? Now, um, and traditionally the way it's done, it, the way people learn things is they're put in a situation where they're, f- they, they are required to adapt. And, and the idea is, is that the environment or the, the situation or the context that you're in, um, asks you if, if you're trying to perform a task, asks you to perform a task in a certain way. And as that environment changes, the dynamics of the task that you're trying to perform change. And so, and so your adaptability defines your ability to perform. And in prehistoric times, that was probably defined how you survived. Um, in a sporting context, it defines how you perform. And so uh, the ecological approach is sort of, there's a branch of psychology, what you, what's called ecological psychology, different forms of psychology, obviously. Uh, some are based around, you know, the, the cognitive psychology, if you like, is based around the brain and the role that the brain plays in performance and is based on some principles around the idea that the brain is, if you like, the central governor and defines all movement, which is one explanation for, for movement. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying it's one explanation. Mm-hmm. 
Ecological psychology looks at it slightly differently, and it says that there is an organism, and in this case it's a human being, who is continuously interacting with its environment. And how the environment changes defines how the organism responds. What does that mean for the purposes of coaching and skill acquisition? Well, if you take a combat sport environment, a lot of combat sports sort of historically have been based around, and not just combat sports, but, but, but all sports for that matter, have been based around a sort of predominant paradigm, which is that if you develop movement patterns um, and you do them enough with enough repetition, they become ingrained in a kind of a cognitive process and also, you know, muscular process. You hear for terms like muscle memory, which is a bit of a myth because muscles don't have memory. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea is if you repeat a movement pattern enough times, you then are able to become proficient or expert at that movement pattern. And if you have enough movement patterns, you then become expert at or you become skillful. The ecological approach contests this idea. And it says that actually... Movement development of movement patterns is valuable if you're in a very, very static and stable environment. But if you're in an environment that's dynamic, where, for example, there might be opponents or an opponent might do things that are unexpected, your movement patterns need to be able to adapt to those move those responses. So it's basically saying the environment determines how you should act, how you should move, how you should respond. And so if you're going to learn to become skillful, you need to learn to become skillful in that environment because the process of, skillful, of skillfulness is one of adaptation. And so um, the ecological approach suggests that we must have an environment continue in order to become a skillful performer, particularly in those dynamic contexts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you imagine a skill acquisition process traditionally the way we've learned to do skill acquisition is you learn a movement pattern and then you apply it in the context and you become skillful. Ecological approach works the other way, which is to say there's an environment that asks questions of you and requires you to move in certain ways, and it's constantly dynamic and varied, and you then must respond to that environment to become a skillful performer, which might mean that you have to then develop movement patterns, but it's working backwards and across uh, rather than a linear process of going from technique towards um, performance. So that's kind of the ecological approach. We can probably come on to constraints-led approach uh, a little bit later because it'll probably build onto that conversation. But that's the sort of ecological approach in a nutshell. And I imagine there's a few more questions you might want to probe me on. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So that's if like if you're you know if you're new to motor learning, skill acquisition, all those types of motor control, those types of, of subjects, um, it's, it it can be kind of hard to digest all of that. So I think basically, if I could rephrase that what you're saying is um the the environment is interacting with you and it's kind of telling you what you need to do what how you need to act as a mover and then as you become more skilled working in those types of environments uh you're you're able to recognize and and kind of uh create movement solutions to respond to those things in the environment better um yeah 100 100 and, yeah. and I tell you a really good live example of that at the moment, actually, in the world of MMA in, in UFC. Sure. There's a lot of conversation going on about the fact that they're in a smaller octagon. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, what does that do for, 
for example, people who like to move and you know kind of avoid contact, but then be like counter you know counter counter strikers, or mm -hmm. people who are trying to avoid you know kind of takedowns and things like that. When you're in a smaller octagon, you've got less escape routes, and so that's a, a factor. Um, you know, and so that's a real example. The environment's different because of the space that you've got as available. But then there's a lot of other factors in an environment as well. So space is one, but also, you know, what the opponent does to constrain space or to move in, in order to limit your possibilities to utilize your, either your, you know, your, 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 um, you know, your game plan or whatever it is that you've got within your skill set or your individual capabilities. And, you know, another live example, again, you know, UFC is, you know, there's a, what, what you might call super fight wasn't there recently with you know um Miocic Cormier and I just remember watching that fight and um just screaming at the tv thinking Cormier like you're a world-class wrestler why aren't you why haven't you tried to take take it to the ground once um it just it was just crazy didn't I mean it, right. it, it doesn't it just I mean you know it was quite, quite an interesting thing I don't want to get into the necessarily get into the weeds of that but it just meant for me it was a bit like why aren't you utilizing the information that's being presented to you in a certain way to be so a, a slightly more skillful performer I think may have made those sorts of decisions anyway I'm gonna get I'm gonna get I'll let you respond to that <laughs> yeah um no I think my probably my listening audience will be eating that up because <laughs> a lot of them are MMA fans I'm sure and uh but yeah but like even from so I have all kinds in my audience. So there's there's MMA. There's uh, there's um, there's like the the self defense people. There's the and then there's like the traditional martial arts. So there's all these like little tribes inside of martial arts, and yeah. to some degree they're all plagued by a traditional understanding of like an information processing understanding, linear pe pedagogy type of understanding of um, motor control and motor learning. So like. Um, and I think this is the case with traditionally in boxing as well, but I know that it coming up in a more like a Taekwondo karate type of, of, uh, background that I, uh, we started by doing our, our, our moves in the air, totally decoupled from any type of specifying information, totally from the environment. Um, and you kind of made your way up to targets and then eventually, eventually down the road, you made it to a, a partner, um, in a sterile environment, no, nothing that's live, nothing that's um, that's actually providing performance context type of uh, um, dynamics, and then and then way 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 down the line, <laughs> sometimes you actually then you end up sparring where you actually get the performance environment, and um, for some reason, despite the fact that that we all we get this, we come to this point. I, I know this is. For most of the people I've talked to that have come up through through traditional martial arts, they they kind of felt this. You go through all these grades of uh, of decoupled, I guess you could say, or, or lack of of a performance environment, um, and then you finally get to the performance environment, and everything you're learning suddenly breaks because <laughs> all all of the the important skills like timing and controlling space and uh, directing your your attention <laughs> to the right places at the right time, you haven't been building those skills at all. So, and um, I know you've talked a lot about uh, traditional approaches to skill acquisition versus um, you know more of a an ecological approach. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak to why it is that that sometimes a tradition, a very traditional, gradual approach to skill acquisition um, is less uh desirable than maybe an ecological approach um well 
Well, there's a number of things, I suppose. Um, so, I mean, as, as a starting point, your the, the example you use is 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 a is a really good one because quite a lot of us, either as coaches or as participants or performers, have had that experience, haven't we? We are. We've done all the training. We've done all the movements. We've followed the path. And then we get to the performance environment and it completely breaks down and you're completely lost and you're all at sea and you don't know what's going on and it's pure survival mode. Mm-hmm. Well, if we've all had that experience, either as a performer or as, I mean, I remember as a coach, you know, I coach team sport and I remember as a coach having my team like, and we were like, I used to do loads of highly repetitive, you know, kind of like, uh, almost like rehearsal stuff, you know, like right. almost like trying to create like a, an organized dance, right? Where we'd like be moving from there to there to there. And we were really, really organized. And it actually worked, right? Because if you're a bit, most teams aren't very well organized. And, and if you're a bit more organized than the other team, in general, you can be more successful than them. So, I, you know, we, we had a good plan and we had a good structure. The problem was when something happened that was, that was um, unexpected or a team had a slightly different game plan that we weren't prepared for, or for example, something unlucky happened that meant we had to sort of chase and we weren't able to stick to our game plan. It just fell apart. Mm -hmm. And I honestly, I just remember spending countless hours on sidelines, screaming and shouting instructions in a desperate attempt to try and resurrect the situation. But in reality, it was gone. It was out of control. We, we, we lost it. And, and it was only through, I suppose, some of these bitter experiences that, you know, you know, as a coach, you start to search for answers, don't you? And you look around yourself, you look into yourself as well. And I was fortunate enough that I've been, you know, I've been very fortunate in my career to be kind of introduced and exposed to a range of different sort of mentors and support people who've been able to, you know, kind of change my perception and introduce me to alternative conceptions. And then, of course, that then sends me on a rabbit hole and I start researching and I start really digging into this stuff. And and at me, what happened was, like, I started searching for something else. I got some little clues and I got some different ideas and I started to experiment with them. And then I started to find the science that then actually then started to back up what I was actually trying to experiment with myself as information became more available, you know. And I, f- I discovered this body of research. I was like, oh, where have you been all my life? I, that could have solved a whole load of pain for both me and all the participants that I've worked with. So, so fundamentally, like what's the, one of the advantages is it, solves, it stops you having a whole load of pain. The second a, a major advantage for me is that it, it's recognizing that, that human beings are um, absolutely fabulous learners, right? We, we, right? There is a reason you know, for any formal training of movement patterns existed and was codified human beings developed these movements themselves without a great deal of you know kind of tutelage if you like you know and it's because we are exquisitely adaptable we are adaptation you know uh, machines but um as sports become kind of more scientified and what i mean by that is like you know the hard sciences have got involved biomechanics and everything else what started to happen is um it it sort of increasingly become like this the influence has come in that it's basically that you you know you kind of need to um look at look at the world through the perspectives of optimal movement and and that became a really dominant paradigm as our capability for analysis of optimal movement became you know so uh, slow motion video capture video itself 
um, 3D movement analysis and all these force plates, all sorts of different things started to emerge. And we got really attracted by that really hard science stuff because it's empirical in nature. And, and you know, and our, our, our kind of, I guess, our predominant narrative has become increasingly empirical. And so we started to look at this hard science and it became really exciting and we became quite um you know drawn to it and so as we start to get more drawn into that kind of hard science and we start to look at video it draws us into this idea that the more we can develop optimal movement patterns the more skillful we can we can become what the ecological i guess community is arguing is actually there is a much more natural approach to this that we could take which could if we're skillful enough help us to be able to look at the way human beings can develop. Now, I'm not saying we don't use all the information through video, et cetera, et cetera, but we're going to use that information in a different way. It's not to create optimal movement patterns. It's to allow individuals to move optimally given a certain set of circumstances. And that's like a fundamentally different way of thinking about things. Yeah, de definitely. And it was really difficult for me to uh, eventually get to wrap my mind around it because everything I, everything I read about, I was trying to relate back to um, kind of my, basically the way we're all sort of programmed growing up through school and, and um, through college and everything is, is uh, very, very traditional ideas about instruction and um, highly, highly structured in curriculums and, and syllabi, syllabi and things like that. So, um, so it seems to me like the, the, that, that the ecological approach or like an ecology um, conception of uh, learning and, and teaching martial arts is going to have, the implications are that you really need to try and, and build exercises. I know you hate the word drill. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I also hate it too, because in the martial arts, everyone means something totally different. You know, a wrestler means when a wrestler says drill, they mean something more like, uh, something that's more alive with interaction. And when, uh, like a jujitsu or a traditional martial arts guy says drill, they mean like, you know, sterile reps, right? <laughs> like dead reps, like compliant reps. So, yeah. um, but like the, the exercises actually need to include the dynamics of the performance context. It needs to be like the game. It needs to be like the fight. Um, and I know that when, when I've, like my, my reaction to that was like, how in the world are you supposed to learn, right? And I know that whenever I, I, I first posed this to um, other instructors, even instructors from more functional martial arts like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or, or kickboxing or something like that, um, they're, they're almost scandalized. They're like, how in the world are you supposed to learn anything if you start out live? Um, so I was wondering if you could speak to, and this might actually be moving more into the constraints led approach. If you want to speak to that, um, how you, how you actually approach really, um, start when, when teaching somebody, you know, the skill acquisition phase, when they're first learning a skill, how you really teach them by really allowing them to play the game to some sort of extent. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you used a really important word, which you, when, you said, um, when you said like the fight, and the important word is like. It doesn't yeah. have to be the full thing. Because <laughs> um, actually, that, 
that's something that when I've been speaking to, you know, kind of other combat sports practitioners, they quite often say, well, hang on a second, safety, you know, you can't just go get in your head. <laughs> kicked in every week because right. there's an issue t- around safety and well-being and all these sorts of things and um, which is absolutely correct so the point is is that and the, the term that we, we use within within the, uh, the the community i suppose is, is they call representativeness and they talk about the idea of representative learning design and the idea is is that you're trying to represent the real life experience now, it, may, it may mean that you take a slice of it. Uh, I, I like this sort of conceptualization. So you don't do a whole fight. You might just do a slice. You might take a component of the fight. And what you're trying to do is to make the learning of the uh, whatever the movement might be or whether, or whether it's a, um, you know, a kind of tactical component, you're making it representative of, uh, as representative as you can given the constraints of safety, et cetera, et cetera, in order to then enable uh, a performer to then respond to something. What you're, what you're always looking for is some response. And I, and I spoke to a, um, an MMA coach some time ago on the show um, who actually used a really good phrase, and they said that actually if you learn the movements without the, res- the possibility of response actually you're potentially learning to be quite reckless so for example you know if if, if you learn an attack move without the idea that something could be coming back at you while you go in well the danger is then you go into that attack move and then something does come back at you and you know you find out pretty quickly that that (laughs) that's something you need to really think about so actually, your attack moves need to be considered from the perspective of what the potential consequences of that going wrong are. So that's where the attunement comes in. So skillful performance is about moving, but also perceiving while moving. So mm-hmm. you're always considering that element. Now, it doesn't mean it has to be done full speed. It could be done in slow motion. You could do it using a range of different uh, constraints. And this is where the constraints-led approach comes in that can make it so that uh, individuals move in a different way that brings about more safety. So, for instance, I've seen a lot of kind of combat training where they're using kind of you know, really oversized gloves that I assume do two things. One is slow, slow, slow the punch movements mm-hmm. and also mean that it's got far less impact when it actually lands. So, for example, that is a const- an example of a constraint and equipment constraints mm-hmm. that, that A, means safety, and B, because it slows down the hand movement, it gives the, um, the person on the sort of receiving end, if you like, look that means that it's not fully like it would be in a, in a bout, but it's, it's got some element of representativeness. Now, that's going into the full bout world, right? But you could do lots of conditioned bouts. And, for example, in I know in, um, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, there's a lot of that, you know, where you're starting in a station. It's almost like a puzzle you've got to solve of how do you get to a certain position from that position and, you know, an, or a dominant position. Or a, so it's not a full bow. It's just part of a bow. You're not trying to get submissions every single time, but you're trying to get positions. And, and so you're designing learning experiences to allow people to explore movement possibility. So just circling all the way back to what you were saying about how some people are affronted, how could you possibly learn live? 
Well, again, it's based on this idea that movement solutions are become a much more powerful thing when they're situated. So, for example, if you and I were in the middle of some sort of uh, you know, kind of altercation, so to speak. Sure. And you move in a certain way that I can't stop or I can't counter. I've learned something. I've discovered something about my movement repertoire. And so I might then utilize a coach to help me with a possible range of opportunities to counter. But ideally what happens is the coach would say, would work with me to discover what the movement repertoire might be based on my individual capabilities, how I'm perceiving that movement, as opposed to what would traditionally be done, which is the coach would say, ah, oh, there's a problem. I'm going to come in now and tell you how to solve that problem by giving you this movement solution. Apply the movement solution well, and you will be able to counter the problem. Um, again, it's a sanitized version. The movement solution might work, but it might not work if the other person adapts to that movement solution. So we're, you know, we're trying to take that dynamic interplay between performer and opponent, and we're working with that as a means by which to define how movement solutions might be. And that depends on me. So the way I'm interacting with the way you're moving, you know, I've got to, I might say to a coach, well, well, what I'm picking up is that they're moving in this way. And if the coach says, that's interesting, in that case, then you might want to, there might, there might be something to explore here. So one of the things that they tend to do in, in an ecological approach is they don't give the solution. They draw attention to where the information is that might help you find a solution. Mm-hmm. And that's like a fundamental, it places the learner or the, the person, the performer in the center of the learning process, discovering things and the coach facilitating the learning experience as opposed to the coach just being the provider of the solution. Right. So yeah, with the, the coach being the provider of the solution. So I guess that's, that's an interesting point. Um, one that I've been feedback and like coaching feedback and, and instruction has been something I've uh, been thinking a lot about. And, um, you've, you've had quite a few episodes over the last year, um, kind of diving into a ecological slash constraints led approach to coaching. Um, and what I've found in martial arts is that most instructors, and I was this way too, um, they view good instruction as just copious amounts of specific um, hard instruction about what you should and shouldn't do in, in, a, in a just a mountain of different if-then type of scenarios. And uh, I, I wrote an article for a uh, a uh, gym management software company called uh, Martial Arts on Rails, where I kind of dove into the idea that maybe we should challenge the idea that good instruction is uh, made up of um, so much detailed information and that maybe we should reconsider instruction um, or coaching rather more as a way to uh, help children and, and, and adult students uh, problem solve and to help them direct their attention to where they need to direct their attention. And I know your, your, your podcast has been really helpful to me on that point. And I was wondering if you could speak to applying the uh, ecological slash constraints led approach to change the way that you instruct and coach. Uh, right. Yeah, that's interesting. So, well, well, one of the things that it does first and foremost is it takes you as a coach, uh, you're far more out of the picture. 
Um, so if we understand that uh, human adaptation and attunement to environment and information in the environment um, acts as a route by which uh, an individual or an organism can adapt and create kind of new movements and behaviors or whatever it might be. And if we recognize that as being the predominant thing, well, the minute you step in with your ideas and your technical knowledge and your solutions, you're robbing the individual of the opportunity to discover that by attuning to the information. Because you take it, why would they need to? Because there's somebody here who knows stuff who can tell me what to do. They don't need to perceive it, perceive it particularly. They just look to this person on the side with the knowledge to tell them, give them the answer. And you get very passive learners then. Um, and you get learners kind of are, you know, very, very much, you know, and, and, and in, it, there's a lot of dynamics there because, and, and I to- totally understand it because lots of people uh, coaches in particular, you know, that, that's, that's in theory what they're paid to do. Give them the information. And if you're not giving them the information, you're seen or perceived to be not coaching. Well, I'm going to suggest that, and if I'm doing coach development activity and I go and observe a coach, the first thing I look at is what is the ratio of information flowing from the coach to the participant versus the other way around? And if the ratio is inverse, as in uh, the coach is giving more information, then, then for me, then there's fundamental, and, and they want to work within a kind of ecological framework, fundamentally there's a problem because the more information flowing from coach to learner or coach to performer basically means then that the performer is really not in, in the center of the learning process. They're a mm. recipient of information and they're trying to interpret that information into some sort of performance action. Also, what you'll often find is you'll find a lot of quite frustrated coaches who give a lot of information and a lot of instruction, but then see not what they're giving the information to do, what they're sort of get the instructions they're giving not being performed, getting quite frustrated at the fact that the individual is not responding to that. And part of that is to do with the fact that the individual is taking what is an abstract concept delivered in the form of language mm-hmm. and they're trying to interpret it to the live environment that they're in or, or the environment that they're in, whether it's live or not, what well, it is a live environment because they're, they're in. And their interpretation of that information and then what that then means for them in terms of movement performance can obviously vary wildly because of this issue between movement and abstract cognitive concepts that come in as in the form of language. Mm-hmm. So then sometimes you use demonstration, sometimes you use physical manipulation. And all of these things are governed by A, how the per- performer perceives the information and B, how they then physically are able to adapt to that. And it's a, it's kind of a, a very difficult dynamic for somebody to deal with. To see, you know, I've got somebody telling me this thing. I'm doing what I think they're telling me, but they're shouting at me saying it's wrong. I actually don't know what right is anymore. And that's like a really horrible situation to be in as right. a coach and as a performer, right? So yeah. that means for then a very... The, the experience is like really not good for anybody. And, and like, what, so why would you want to persist with that? And the assumption then from the coaches, because they've got no other tool, nothing else in their toolbox, the only thing they can do is give more information or do more demo, whatever it is. And the performance still doesn't get any better. So 
what happens in an ecological not not necessarily in there that much at all, apart from maybe to pose questions or maybe to uh, change the dynamics of the environment. What you're, what you're seeking to do, and what I often do, is I change the environment so that something in the environment has changed to then see how the performer adapts to the environment change. So, for example, if, let's say, I had two performers in front of me and one was working on some sort of defensive movement whilst the other one was then putting different attacks. If I was to say to the person who is the, on the attack, I want you to attack in a certain way without telling the person who's, who's learning about the defensive movement, um, what I would then look to do is to see, A, how the person doing the defensive movement responds, and then I would work with that the defensive movement to find out what they're seeing happening in the attacker to see if they're picking up the various things that the attacker is now doing that might have changed in the environment to then discover with them what it is they might do, if they do observe it, by the way, uh, to change it. So I might one way I might change the environment is to give an opponent a different task to see how the other opponent responds. Or another way I might change the environment, for example, might be to constrain the space that's available to then see how that individual might respond to the fact that the space is changed and it, it then means that they've got l limited options in terms of evasion, let's say. So, sorry, I'm, I've gone on a bit of a long-winded rant there. But So my point being is, just to sort of summarise that, is when you work ecologically, you're thinking much more about how you can change the environment or discovering through questioning how the performer is perceiving changes in the environment than you are thinking about giving them solutions. In fact, you very, very rarely give solutions, which is a challenging thing for some coaches, particularly when they've got a lot of information they want to give or, or, or expertise to provide. Get your ego out of the equation because it's the learner learning that matters. Now, it might mean eventually that if the learner is really, really struggling, that you may then need to provide some clues or even provide a movement, movement solution because they're just not quite getting there and they really, really need your help. But that comes far later in the learning process than it would in a traditional model where it's right at the start. Yeah. Yeah, that, oh, excellent. Very excellent. Um, so you, you, you said, um, I think really to summarize that, you're saying that you as the coach, you enter... You you enter into what's going on in the environment to help uh, to act to first understand how it is that the that the learner is perceiving the environment and then to sort of um, help direct them uh, not not explicitly but maybe by asking questions uh, help nudge them towards the where they should be putting their attention and and or help them actually understand their own. Um, emerging problem-solving process is that would that be accurate? Yeah, uh, dead on. And and what's important about that as well is that um, the types of question you might use, for example, because ultimately what I'm interested in is is how I, is this individual or group of in individuals living their environment? Because I can only change it and manipulate it. And you know, I like to think of it sometimes as like a like a photograph and you know in the aperture in a in a camera like it focuses the light in such a way that it becomes quite a you know that the the picture then becomes a more folk you're getting a stronger image 
because the light is coming into the lens in a certain way. It's a similar idea. You're sort of constraining the environment in such a way that, you know, almost like there's this beam of light that's information that's sort of almost like, in theory, hitting the performer between the eyes. Right. right. And it's then, and then they're not seeing all the other stuff, all the other noise that's there. They're just seeing this thing and you go, and then they, they begin to focus in on that thing and then, then they begin to respond to it. It's quite, it can be quite challenging to do because you often find that you constrain in a way that you think is absolutely got in this beam of light and they're just not picking up on it. So then you find yourself a bit like, so then, so the important thing for me though is that I'm always really responding or always think, always interested in how is the performer interacting with the environment? What information are they taking? So like one of my favorite questions is, um, what did you notice? Because in my mind, there's no wrong way to answer that apart from to say, I didn't notice anything. You must have noticed something. Were you asleep? Um, <laughs> so my, my view is that um, you, I want to know what you're noticing. What are you noticing? You're noticing anything. And, and, and it's very important to do that because in the past, what I've done is I used to use questions because like, it's good to use questions. You know, you're here you know, on the coaching courses, use questions. But I would use questions basically just to get them to find my solution. I've got a solution. <laughs> yeah. It's like the coach guessing game, right? I've got a solution in my mind. I want you to guess it. I'm going to ask you some questions. And then you just literally, the, the athlete just like tries to list as many things as possible in the vain hope that they're going to stumble across the thing the coach has got in their mind. Good. Well done. Yes, you've got it right. I don't do that anymore. I use a much more divergent approach, right? I'm not trying to get them to my answer. I'm purely and simply using questions to elicit information from them which might tell me or give me clues as to the way they're interacting with the environment, which mm -hmm. then means I can either help them focus on a particular area by a further question. So I'll quite often pose a question as a means to focus attention. What, what do you, so they'll, I might say, what do you notice? And I say, well, I notice that when my leg moves here, their, their leg is going there. Okay, that's really interesting. All right, now I want you to pay attention then. The only thing I want you to pay attention to is when you move your leg, where, where exactly do their leg move to? And then we do the action, we come back, and then we're learning something and we're discovering something. So my response to the athlete is always based on what they're giving me. So very rarely now am I coming to them with a solution in mind. I might have one, but I'm, I'm holding that back right until the last minute i'm waiting for them because if their perception is somewhere else then i'll go with that i'll follow where the energy is right yeah i, I remember um i wish i had this uh, this tool uh a, a couple years ago i i used to teach for a uh non-profit uh karate program that's kind of nationwide um and they what they do is they they offer. Uh, they they set up in areas that are that are low income and kind of offer uh, a way for uh, learn um, students and, and their parents to afford to to take karate lessons. But the but it's really uh, like you know just one or two classes a week, and um, the the program was extremely linear, linear, extremely uh, traditional, and uh, it's it's you. You don't learn your this technique until you get to this level, right? And then you don't even start sparring until you're, you're two, three belts down the road, which could be six months. It could be almost a year because it's a, a fairly slow program because you only can practice maybe once or twice a week. And what I found was when the students actually began to spar, what they would do was toss out random combinations that they were taught. And uh, they would 
almost never make contact with their partners. And they just, they just couldn't figure it out. They would, couldn't figure out why it was that they would be tossing out all of these punches and kicks and they it even start trying to move forward and this and that. And they just weren't making um, contact. And uh, I wish that I could have just set them aside and been like, asked them a question about, you know, what happened? Why do you think you, that kick didn't land? Why do you, why were you, why were you throwing that back fist even though your, your jab didn't even land? Like, um, you know, did you feel like you were in range at that point? Like what, what was going through your mind when you, when you made that decision? And I never, you know, I didn't have, I didn't have that back then, but I know that I know, I understand now that, that it wasn't that they were just unskilled. They were skilled enough at the techniques themselves, but they had spent so much time in the uh, striking in the air and on bags that they had, they had no perceptual motor uh, skill for any of those techniques. They didn't understand how to close and manipulate distance. They didn't understand timing. They didn't understand how to control their um, techniques based on the the information in the environment. So when I got in there, and and I'm not the best sparer, you know, I I, I kind of came up through the same thing, and and it wasn't until much later that I began to actually, you know, get get more get more of that good type of training. But when I got in there, I can make contact and then be out of range in a second. And they just they got so frustrated that some of the students, some of the older students. Uh, were would get angry, right? And they would try to bull rush me, <laughs> which you're not supposed to do in karate. But uh, and um, I wish I could have just been the kind, kind of like a therapist and step back and like, hey, why'd you get upset? Like, you know, oh, because you know, I I couldn't hit you and and you kept hitting me, and I just couldn't figure out what was going on. And then I could say, well, you know, how come you couldn't hit me? And kind of just get them thinking about what was going on and and maybe where they needed to direct their attention. Um, so, I mean, I guess I got off on a long tangent now too, but, <laughs> uh, that's, that, that's one of those situations where when you keep somebody out of the performance environment so long and everything is so artificial, the training methods are so artificial that you really hurt them in the long run. Like, how are they supposed to, if they can't spar, like how are they supposed to use that stuff to defend themselves? And it's and, and that, that's that's one of the challenges as well, isn't it? Because like a lot of this stuff is a, a lot of martial arts teaching is designed around self defense mm-hmm. in some cases, isn't it? But then you know if somebody actually does get into a difficult situation and yet all they've learned is sort of isolated sanitized technical movements, th- the whole thing just falls apart under the pressure of somebody acting to cause them physical harm. And loads of people have probably had that experience. And, and so for me, that's a big concern I would have is that, you know, you're in some cases where these things are presented as a self-defense thing. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I don't want to be disparaging because I think there's a lot of value in some of that stuff, right? Which is because some of it's about personal discipline. Some of it's about, you know, the, the commitment it takes to sort of, you know, kind of follow the patterns and all those sorts of things. And I mm-hmm. get there's a load of ancillary benefits, but if it's being sold as a means to develop combat skill for whatever purpose, well, it, it's sort of a little bit lost. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm not saying necessarily either, by the way, I'm not necessarily saying that, you know, that the movement skills can only be derived from 
for example, the the kind of in, the interaction. I mean, you may need to do some semi. I'm going to call it semi isolated, right? Yeah, semi isolated movement movement learning because actually in about you don't learn the movements particularly because you're too busy in survival mode. So I'm not mm-hmm. saying that this has to happen that way. What I'm trying to say is that um, the idea of learning a load of movements in isolation and trying to translate them into what is a very dynamic context is, you know, really quite limited in its application. And instead, what we should do is be thinking about, let's take our direction from the dynamic context as a means by which to direct people's learning, which is a, and I also get this, right? It's a very difficult paradigm because for a lot of people, that's like, you know, karate in particular, you know, which I did as a child, you know, it's based on volume. So the business model is based on volume. So you've got a lot of people who, you know, need a 30 people in a class to make it run viably. And to own, the only way you can do 30 people in a class is to get them to all follow a load of movements. And I'm, I'm not saying that's wrong, right? But that's different, right? That's basically, this is where I sound a little bit disparaging, that's <laughs> basically more akin to dance or it's yeah. a, an exercise class. Right. You know, it's a form of exercise and in itself, absolutely great. But let's not dress, let's just say that that's what it is though. Let's not dress it up as developing, you know, kind of uh, uh, combat skill because combat skill is something else entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, and it will, it would, you, to become a great fighter, you will need to fight people <laughs> and you will need to probably start from that perspective and work back a lot. You will have yes. to fight them a lot. <laughs> well, anybody who, anybody who is, who is absolutely expert or at the top of their game has done it a lot, haven't they? Yeah, and you so you you mentioned kind of like the, there is some value to more traditional ways of instruction. So I'm wondering like how can you when when do, when do you know or when do you feel like it could be beneficial to um, revert to a a traditional way of of instruction? Do you think that maybe it's kind of so you start them in the environment, kind of coupled with that information, and then if they they're everything that you're trying from a constraints-led approach is really not uh, working very well. Is that when you kind of step back a little bit? And Hey guys, real quick before the episode continues. If you're wondering how you can supercharge your training in a way that helps you actually perform better on the mat or in the ring, I've got the perfect thing for you. I've taken the scientific concept known as transfer of learning and distilled it down into a handful of dead simple, easy to understand rules you can use to supercharge your training today. And the best part is that it almost always makes training more fun, not less. Now you don't have to spend hours and hours of drilling just to fail when your practice gets tested in sparring or competition. Instead, you can take these simple rules and transform your drills and exercises into rapid skill building machines. Your classmates and training partners won't believe your progress. And if you're an instructor, your students will get better faster than ever and have more fun while doing it. Go to combatlearning.com slash transfer to sign up to our email list and grab your transfer cheat sheet now. Plus, you'll never miss an episode and get access to exclusive tips. And just to say thanks, I'll send you my introduction to motor learning for martial arts PDF so you can get up to speed on the powerful concepts we're discussing on this podcast. So go to combatlearning.com slash transfer now to get your cheat sheet and other goodies. That's combatlearning.com 
slash transfer, T-R-A-N-S-F-E-R. Make it yeah, I mean, so let's say, let's say, let's take a, like a real practical example, because I think it's important to be practical. So let, let's say you're learning to do a, uh, like a, like a, a leg kick, right? Mm-hmm. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's probably different ways of doing a leg leg kick like sure. there's probably a way of doing it that doesn't break your foot for a kickoff but also there's <laughs> lazy like that get give you the power right but mm-hmm. of course with everything is an opportunity cost right so the more power you put into a leg kick the more vulnerable you are to a counter punch probably you know and this is where my kind of lack of combat sport expertise comes in but you know notionally in my mind this is kind of how things work you know if i give everything i've got into a leg kick the chances are that it's also then going to make me sort of more vulnerable to somebody coming back to me with some sort of counter of some kind yeah um and so there's you've got to find the optimal you know, and it's got to be, it's got to cause maximal damage, for example, uh, but it's also got to be effective enough to, that it's not going to leave you too vulnerable to the, the other consequences. Right. Um, and also it's got to be disguised enough. It's also got to be able to be thrown, but also in combination with other things. So it can't just be thrown in isolation. It's got to be thrown and then potentially with either a defensive movement or another attacking movement on top of it, right? So there's loads of different components to this. But the, the core element we're learning about, we're trying to discover, is the idea of you know leg kicks, right? And, and what they might be. Now, for you and me to just go at it, smashing each other in the thigh, it's not going to last very long, right? So it's, and also it's probably not brilliant for our training capabilities and our health. So we're probably not doing each other. But then the oppor- the other opportunity thing is like to just go against like a heavy bag and just kick a heavy bag a lot. Well, my challenge would be to say, well, actually, the opposite isn't necessarily going to help you any better because you go kick a heavy bag as hard as you can, and heavy bag's not going to hit you back. So what I would need to do is to try and find a way of saying, well, how can I train doing a leg kick, right, on a, on something that can move, but also something that could do something back to me that I would need to respond so that I can start to attune to the idea of how how a leg kick should be executed in a more live environment. Right. So what we might, for example, do is have you in a padded suit of some kind moving and maybe with uh, like a some kind of a, I think some kind of like a, a padded rod of some kind, I don't know what it might be, right? That is your kind of counter jousting stick or something. I'm really making this up, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Right? You have to go with my flight of fancy for a second, right? So this leg kick comes in and if it's not executed quickly enough, then with a defensive movement that, able, that stops you then getting, then you're going to joust this person in the head with this padded like jousting stick, right? So that the individual's learning to kick and they're also learning to dodge a counter, right? Well, that's right. really skillful performance, that, isn't it? And we're going to explore that for a bit, right? It's safe because you're padded and there's a padding thing coming back. But we're really learning about a leg kick in something like a real environment. So we're going to use the fact, you know, there's a group of us here, by the way. You know, we're in, the, in this activity. We're going to set this activity up. We're going to be a bit creative in our learning design. And so that's not, that's not really like about, right? Because there's not the pure terror and peril of about in there. <laughs> but we're still learning it with a degree of rep- degree of realism or representativeness, and so we, you know, we're going to do something then that is going to b- help you to become a more skillful performer. Because what we've done is we've taken an isolated movement and we've wrapped around it some safety elements, but also some additional components, which means that we're going to do we're going to learn to move in a way that is closer to what is likely to happen in in a bout than a purely isolated thing like kicking a heavy back. 
Right. Yeah. And that's, that's something I've been working through too, especially from in the, in the martial arts com- community, people there's, there's the tiers, right? There's the traditional martial arts and there's the functional martial arts. And mm-hmm. most people are like, yeah, boxing, kickboxing, Muay Thai, those are all like the functional martial arts. So everything we do in that is by extension, you know, kosher. It's okay. It's good. But I've kind of, I've raised some, um, and this has not been met well, by the way, uh, I've raised some concerns about the uh, lack of representativeness in uh, bag work and uh, mitt work because uh, in mitt work, you're giving the wrong, you're moving the wrong shoulder and the wrong um, arms uh, when you present the right, the correct mitt to do mitt work. So the person that's doing the mitt work is learning to respond to the wrong specifying information to for like a jab or a cross, right? So, um, for so maybe not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, that's that that's it. And then there's also the fact that you're calling out numbers, so it's like you're you're not some of the some of your attention is split between the specifying information and just a, an arbitrary uh, declarative piece of information um, and then with the bag you it moves so you kind of have to adjust distance if you're doing bag work correctly but like you said there's no response so you're not you don't have to worry about not kicking so hard that you leave yourself vulnerable so like with leg kicks you're right there is a there is a way that like if you put all your power into a leg kick and you misjudge the distance or he moves too much, you could put yourself on the ground or you leave yourself open to be swept because yep. your leg, you know, rotates way too much. And it's happened yep. in MMA and it's happened in uh, karate. And you can do that in karate. You can sweep somebody who, who overkicks. It happens yep. all the time in Muay Thai. Yep. Um, so if you're, all you're doing is power kicks, right? then you're not going to understand that sort of hidden aspect of the performance context where you actually, most of the time, you don't want to put full power into your kick because you're going to overextend yourself and end up either taking yourself out because of the momentum or opening yourself up to something else. And that's something that coaches in those areas implicitly understand or intuitively understand. But when it comes to making it declarative in terms of what they're coaching. Sometimes there's a blind spot there. There's like a disparity between what it is that they know if you toss them in the ring and what it is that they teach. (laughs) Um, Especially I I see this really in Taekwondo um, people talking about the, the evolution of Taekwondo with Olympic sparring. They lament the fact that it doesn't look as powerful as it did in the nineties and the two thousands. Um, but what, so what they do is they say, well, I teach the power dynamic, right? I, you, we kick to hurt and that's what we do. Uh, never mind the fact that even in, in the nineties and the two thousands that you couldn't, you, you still couldn't kick full power every time you did it because you, <laughs> you would run out of energy first of all. And because the, the person could, um, could move. Right, and you would you could slip and fall because of that, or uh, over rotate, <laughs> all those different things that I just mentioned. And I sit here and, and I listen to these guys, and like, yeah, we do the real the real taekwondo from back in the day. And I'm like, well, 
But you know, if you were in a sparring match, you wouldn't be doing all that. So you're teaching your students the power first, power only Taekwondo uh, because you're react, you're being reactionary towards this new meta in the, in the, in Taekwondo competition, but you really, but you know, implicitly that that's not, that's not how it, like, that's not a prudent way to approach it, the, a, a match strategically. Um, yeah, I mean, you, 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 you make a, a number of very good points that, that, probably needs to be pulled apart. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm not surprised, by the way, that, that I'm not surprised that the kind of bag work stuff is, uh, or the pad work is like, you know, you're getting some negative responses. But partly that's due to the fact that you know, the old adage of if the only tool you've got is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Right. And, you know, people haven't necessarily got a framework or a way of thinking about skill development and therefore you know a toolbox like the constraints led approach to help them to conceive of ways in which they might help a performer with a movement problem um what they've got is the the traditional techniques that you know are tried and tested and someone comes along and actually says might not be the best way to develop skill and you're going to get some you're going to get some negative response because that's you're basically saying to people everything you're doing is maybe you need to question now in my mind that is one of the marks of great coaching. Great coaches mm-hmm. are continuously looking for new solutions and ideas. They're continuously learning from each other. They're adapting. They're, um, you know, in some cases, they're, um, you know, kind of stealing other people's ideas or they're <laughs> uh, being inspired by other people's ideas. You know, I mean, they talk, uh, one of the great fo- um, soccer coaches, Pep Guardiola, talks. He says, I'm, I'm just a thief. I just go around and I take other people's ideas and I adapt them for my, myself. But most people actually don't do that. The really good ones anyway, they don't. They, they see something and then they take something and they turn it into their own thing and then they add to the, the knowledge, right? Right. And so, so the reason we're doing this is because we want to share different ideas with people and help them to find alternative solutions. So there's really no need to feel threatened by that if you're genuinely committed to your craft. If you are threatened by it, well, that's a sign that you're somebody who has got something that you're trying to protect. And there's a lot of dynamics there. It could be that you're trying to protect uh, to, to protect a livelihood. You're trying to protect a reputation. You're trying to protect a might have. And that's, that's all understandable and very human, but it should act as a bit of an alarm bell. So one of the kind of marks of any great coach, if you're out there and you, you, you are wanting to work with a coach and you're looking for a great coach, you should see somebody who's curious and open to different ideas and different ways of working. Also, what people don't understand is people think of great coaches as being the people who give you the knowledge and they're an expert and they've got lots of information and they tell you stuff. Right. Not a great coach, to be honest. A great coach is interested in you and what you're learning. They should definitely not be, uh, they might give you some information, but they should be doing it far less than most people think. So they're important factors to consider. But the, the thing about the pad work and the bad work, bad work stuff is it, it all depends. Everything's based on intent, right? Everything, everything's fine. Everything's on the on the table, right? You can use your pads if you want to, as long as you understand what they're for and what they're best for. They're not best for skill acquisition and the learning of mo- and the learning of being a skillful fighter. Mm-hmm. What they are might be useful for is physical training, um, a warm up. Um, the, the very act of going through the motions of hitting something and the feeling of that, 
and you know going through the idea of the feeling of a certain way and all those sorts of things moving around cutting all those sorts of things fine right but understand that's what they're for that's the value they have right which is you know a relatively small part so the issue isn't necessarily the use of pads it's the overuse and mm. the misperception that they are helpful in the development of movement skill they are only one very small component in the development of movement skill and in my opinion should be like the seasoning on a meal used sparingly right they should use far less than people think they are particularly if we're interested in skill dynamics so um uh, th- th- i guess that's the point i want to make is that any of these methods i'm not saying don't do them necessarily i mean i i spend very little time in isolated movement work really because i haven't got very much time with my athletes anyway and so i want to maximize the time i do have on things that i believe are going to help them to improve the most even if it takes slightly long oh and that's the other point to make here as well when someone hits a bag or they or they hit pads they feel like they're getting a good workout Mm -hmm. and they're something out of it but the reality is they're getting something that i describe as fool's gold (laughs) <laughs> if you if you think you've got something in one session in ter- in the world of s- skill and the dynamics of human movement if you think in one session that you have perfected a movement you are deluding yourself it's fool's gold yes. what you've done is you've done something a few times and it feels like you've got a different movement but i guarantee the minute you take that into a dynamic environment it'll fall apart because skill acquisition is a slow inf- not painful but slow process and it, it requires uh, a lot of dynamical movement that is um, not easy to unpick all the time. And sometimes it'll feel like you're not making much progress. But actually, that kind of pit, the pit of learning or the difficulty area is really where the richness is. And a lot of coaches are a bit fearful of people going into the zone of difficulty because they, they think that the individual will feel, oh, God, you know, oh, I'm not making progress. Oh, what is this coach even telling me? So they keep everything right. on the surface level and they keep it easy and simple to mm-hmm. keep everybody happy going away with a smiling face. Yeah. People in the past, I used to evaluate my coaching sessions by people going away with a smiling face. Now yeah. I evaluate them by people going away slightly disgruntled. <laughs> then I know I've captured them a little bit and they've got something that they're taking away that's sort of eating away at their brain that they may want to continue to develop. Yeah. Yeah, that well, wow. yeah, that's a great point. And that's really because there's such a business incentive to teach in a very highly structured traditional way in martial arts, regardless of traditional or MMA or whatever, people are really afraid. Uh first of all, they don't understand the 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 fact that truly learning a movement is is a long period. So you can't judge somebody's skill with a technique based on their performance in one uh, class or one session. They don't understand how that 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 how that works. Um, but they also have that incentive that excuse me, that business incentive where if they're not smiling and you know sweaty smiles and, and laughing and high fives and stuff when they when they walk away, now that's going to hit your retention. Um, I, for adults, maybe for kids, that could be the case. But for adults, I don't think that's the case. I think with, I know in jujitsu, a lot of times, um, some of the guys, they walked away very pensive, right? There's something going on in their game that they're mulling over in their head over and over again, trying to solve. Mm-hmm. And even though their experience wasn't super, po- their, their feelings weren't positive walking away, 
That's a retention mechanism insofar as they want to come back and test their hypothesis again. They want to solve it. Yeah. So I, I, sometimes I think maybe if, you, if, you're, if you're stuck with somebody who's maybe very neurotic and uh, you don't want to lose them as a student, um, it, maybe there is a trade-off between the traditional and the constraints-led in terms of motivational, motivation management, right? Maybe you have to every once in a while come through and rebuild that confidence. Um, just bear with me one second, sorry. Yeah. It's on the top there. Sorry, my daughter is, uh, has an essential request. Where is the iPad? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> uh, it's the working from home uh, scenario with no school, so there we go. Yeah. Anyway, sorry about that. Um, no worries. Y- um, yeah, you, uh, you, you're... Well, I would argue maybe I would look at it slightly differently perhaps, which is mm. I've sort of challenged myself not to go back to the traditional, what I, what I had previously. And, and I've done that as a, as a constraint on me because I know how to do that. And right. I don't really believe in it anymore anyway, but right. I could do that if I wanted to, but I've sort of tried to put a constraint on myself to say that would be a bit easy actually. And it's almost like I would probably never fully challenge myself to explore the different approaches because I'm really learning. You know, Every day is a really rich learning experience now. Actually, coaching before was a bit boring. It was formulaic. <clears throat> it was it was very um, sterile. Yeah, and I didn't derive a great deal of joy from it. Whereas now I do. I, you know, every session has got something that's just very challenging and and kind of rich. And it does require you to have a good degree of vulnerability to share, to say that you don't know everything. And right. actually, I'm going to explore solutions with you, the learner. We're going to be together on this journey of exploring solutions together, and I'm just going to be your co-creator or co-partner. And any knowledge I have that I can use to sort of help you, I will. But right. so that's a firstly, firstly, that's a fundamentally different conception of what the role is. It's not a teacher. It's a I call it a sense maker. You're helping an individual to make sense of an environment that you're also in. So you take yourself from being on the top as the knower with the power and the controller to being somebody who's alongside the learner in the environment with them with as much information as they have and perception. And you're going to help the individual by sharing your perceptions to help them sort of find clues. Now, if you look at it from that perspective and change the dynamics of what your role looks like, what I do is now say to people, so I wouldn't necessarily go to a traditional approach necessarily. What I would do is I would apply the constraints-led approach in a different way. So your point's a really good one, by the way, which is an individual may not resonate with it particularly well because of either their predominant um, psychological makeup or some emotional challenges or a range of factors that any Social programming. <laughs> oh God, yeah, that's a big one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give yeah. me the drills, please. I'm addicted to them. Right. Um, so, so in that context, previous experiences are huge. Yeah. So, but then what you might then do is an application of a constraint-led approach in a slightly different way. So it's something that maybe is similar to where they've been before, but the application is slightly different. Now, my experiences so far have been that I have never ever experienced something where somebody has outright said to me, can we just do the really boring repetitive movement patterns again, please? Because I really need it. 
I, I really want it. And if I, if I ever have had that, and I reckon I can count it on genuinely, maybe definitely on one hand, no more than that, I would very often say, I, I could do that, but what about if we did this instead? And they always go, oh no, that would be much better. Yeah. <laughs> or if I acquiesced ever and went into pure isolated movement pattern road, they very quickly came to the conclusion, actually, no, this is boring. Can we do something more exciting, please? So it's interesting. It's about application. And I do agree with you. You do need a very personalized application. Right. And that's probably one of the difficulties as well with anybody embarking on a kind of ecological conception of coaching or a constraints-led approach is getting the application right is sometimes quite challenging. And I've definitely got it wrong. But you have to accept that and also be very honest with your athletes that in, if you're genuinely going to be responsive to their needs, you're probably going to get that wrong a couple of times because we haven't got the answers pre-prescribed. We're not just pulling something straight out of a book. This is about dynamic learning in the, in the environment, in the context. There's going yeah. to be a bit of ugliness there. Yeah. Navigating, I guess, would be a great word for that. Navigating is a great word. I use that as a lot, yeah. Yeah, navigating it as, as, a, as opposed to uh, simply leading you by the hand. Yeah, I, that, I guess that would be a great kind of, yeah. Yeah. Um, so while you were talking, <laughs> I had a breakthrough and that, <laughs> and that is that, um, the, that between the traditional mode of instruction and the constraints led approach, you're not communicating necessarily less with the, the learner, but you're just communicating in a different way. So instead of using the learners, uh, feeling about the, the, the learning experience that session as a way to keep them coming back. Instead, uh, their relationship with you as the coach um, can be a more a powerful retention mechanism insofar as you are opening their eyes to what's actually happening, right? You're letting them know, hey, you're going to be frustrated. That means you're in a good place and we're going to work through this together. So keep working through this problem in your mind. So you kind of, I guess in, in a way, you're kind of undoing the damage that's done to people and their, their notion about education and learning that they are programmed with through, you know, 18 years of school, um, coming up through traditional education and things like that. And you're starting to, in a way, implicitly train them to, um, to, to take, more interest and more uh, delight in the learning process, even even insofar as as appreciating their mistakes and their plateaus and things like that. I might, obviously, this is something I'm just now thinking about, so I'm kind of reaching for words to get my thoughts out. But I was wondering if that if that sounded accurate to you in terms of the 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 differences in communication between traditional instruction and constraints led approach. Yeah, and, and it's probably worth mentioning that whilst the constraints-led approach is, if you like, a, a way of designing learning environments or manipulating mm -hmm. learning environments to help performers respond, and ecological dynamics or ecological approach or ecological psychology is a theoretical perspective that uh, kind of oversees that and, and kind of is a lens through which to look at human adaptation, human development. Mm -hmm. um, and the, tra the thing, uh, w one thing I'll say is, when you look at the world through an ecological lens, it's very hard to not look at it like that anymore. Right. <laughs> you see it elsewhere as well. 
uh, and you see the limitations of some learning approaches, school, et cetera, et cetera, and it becomes ext- you become extremely frustrated right. um, quite quickly. So it's a bit of a blue pill, I'm afraid. But, um, but anyway, once you see – so you've got the lens through which you look at it. You've got constraints that approach, which is a kind of way of – governing the activity but then what that doesn't take into consideration is how the individual human as in the coach needs to behave and interact within all that so we have Mm -hmm. led to that which is you know uh, it's not a coach-led approach (laughs) it's an athlete-led learning approach yeah so um that's something that i think people don't quite get which is i'm doing constraints i'm asking some questions uh, it's a, it's 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 performer centered, right? Mm, no, because you're still the knower. You're still the one with the power. You're still the one determining who does what, when, and how. Actually, if you're more athlete led, then what you are is you're some you're placing yourself as a as a learner yeah. inside the learning environment as well. And and actually, the better learner you are, the more intuitive you are, the more in tune with what the athletes are exp- experiencing you become and you do have to use i wrote a blog post about use developing superpowers by shutting up because <laughs> my listening skills improved and my um my intuition improved i, I sensed things weren't right i can't quite describe what that is and I, right. I couldn't possibly but i just knew so i was hearing things i was seeing things i was feeling things and sensing things that i probably hadn't sensed before why i was too busy putting this barrage of noise into the space Right. So by being quieter, I became more skillful because I was more in, able to attune to what the performers were experiencing. So as I became more skillful, I didn't always necessarily need to solicit information from the athletes because I was observing it. So what I would often do is solicit information from the athletes just to confirm that my, my suspicion was correct to, order the, to then make a change. Or I would just make a change just to see how they adapt to that because I could kind of pick up from the vibes on the field or wherever it was happening, what was taking place. So if you want to, I mean, a genuinely skillful performance uh, as a coach, if you think about this, right, if we're, about, if we're interested in human learning, skillful mm-hmm. performance as a coach, you have to work in this way. You have to be in with the athlete. You have to be in their space and trying to derive what their experiences are if you're just purely an instructor, well, an instructor, and this will sound, this will probably be where you get all the, this is where you get all the, all the writings now, and I get a load of death threats, right? But <laughs> if all you do is provide instruction, all you do, or it's the dominant paradigm that you use, well, any anybody can do that, right? That's not skillful, is it? I mean, that's purely and simply just transmission mode, and all I've got to do is read a couple of books, and I can tell people loads of stuff, and I'll yeah. seem, ex- and I'll seem expert. And they'll probably see me as expert because I've read a couple of books. But that's not coaching. That's not skillful coaching performance. But it's perceived as being. But those of us who really know what skillful performance looks like, it's the people who place themselves out of the picture. And their interventions are like rapiers, right? Um, They're like, you know, it's just very little, but it's just right on point. And the athlete just gets it. How many people experience that in their lives? Not many. But when you get it, when you experience it, it's the most powerful experience you'll ever have. And when you as a coach go in there and you know that you've just nailed it, there's no greater feeling. I mean, if, you just, if you're in it just for yourself, right? And mm-hmm. like the absolute, 
thing. I, I, I get in, so I genuinely, I get in and I, I'd love to do some research on coaching flow. I get into flow working in this way. I'm, yeah. I'm, I, I'm in a struggle sometimes. It's the most difficult feeling, but you're in it and you're just kind of in, I'm just, time disappears and I'm just there with the athlete and we're struggling at it and we're working through it together. And I just get into complete flow and I'd never, ever got into flow before. I was just purely following my script or looking at right, my right. notes and telling people what to do. It was just joyless experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I've actually had friends, I talk with my friends about this stuff because, uh, if I didn't, I wouldn't have anyone to talk to. So I bug them. <laughs> so, uh, a lot of them teach martial arts. So, you know, the, a lot of the, initially what, what the, I've gotten is like, why would you like, if you're not giving all this information out, because this is a big problem in martial arts as being the expert and giving all this information down from on high. Um, you know, if you're not giving all this information and you're not vomiting information on the student, um, you know, what it like anyone could, could just have them play the sport and, and get better at it. Like, what's the point of, of the constraints led approach? I'm like, well, actually, when you really think about it, it requires a more skilled practitioner to do this constraints led approach because you have to understand the fundamental dynamics of the game and you have to understand the different types of experiences that athletes have specifically in your sport. In order to design learning experiences, you don't just toss them into skirmishes or sparring matches or whatever. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, high-level, ab- almost abstract manipulation going on on a, in terms of 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 uh, you know what you want to the types of things you want to emerge in that environment so that you can get good practice, quote unquote, reps um, to help build certain skills in your students, and that takes really a, a really r- extremely deep knowledge of the game itself. So it's, you can learn the script of instruction, right? I, I've put them to, as a chief instructor in a, a dojong, as we call them, or a, that's the Korean for dojo. Before I put those scripts together, I designed those scripts. They're not hard, right? Instructional systems um, are not very hard to put together to help uh, new instructors know what to say and, and do in a, in a given lesson. Um, what's harder is to teach them how to, uh, what you say, approach a di- create dynamic environments and then dynamically adjust those environments to help the students by being attuned with the students. And I feel like um, this is something that really bothered me about instructors because I didn't just you know teach. I, I've taught in a lot of places and with instructors, even ones that were in, in places over me, one thing that bugged me a lot was the distance these traditional uh, methods created between the instructor or the coach and their, their learners, their athletes, and how little they actually listened to their athletes as they tried, tried on their own to give them some feedback about their experience, especially children. And um, for me, I started to listen to what the kids were saying. And uh, not only did I get better at teaching them or coaching them or helping them, um, my relationship got better. The kids wanted to come in and tell me about their day. (laughs) You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. it got to the point where Mike, this is is really weird too. When I was teaching in my own club, um, a couple of years ago, it got to the point where my kids 
almost even never asked me about going up another belt. They just wanted to come in and talk to me about their day and, and do, do some Taekwondo. I mean, that was, they were just having fun um, yeah. and, and learning. And to them, and it was just, this is an accident really, but just because I was listening to them so much and really tailoring what I said back and how I structured the lessons in that way, uh, it, it, it went from, hey, I want to work up through the belts and get the black belt to, hey, I want to come in and hang out with, uh, with Mr. Peacock. So it's, you know, it, it changes, it fundamentally change. It seems to me like an, a, a constraints-led approach to coaching will fundamentally change your relationship with the learner and almost make it um, more intimate, more, more close. I, I don't know if that's been your experience, but. Yeah. Uh, oh no, without a doubt. It's a, and I'm, I, I think that's a really astute observation, actually. I'm really glad you made it, which is it definitely builds connection. Yeah. And when you think about it, <clears throat> an instructional approach means that it, it creates that distance necessarily, doesn't it? Because um, if you're essentially seeing a human being as a passive recipient of information or a somebody who should essentially behave because you said so, then there's a natural distance between an individual who is essentially saying, do this and do that, and treating and objectifying, if you like, the performer, than an individual who is saying, you, you and I, we're going places together and we're going to learn some stuff as we go. And I'm going to try and help you with whatever it is that you want to do and be the kind of guide by the side or whatever, or the navigator or the sense maker or whatever term you want to use. Yeah. Well, it, it, the two things are sort of diametrically opposed. What one is naturally more about it's one's more about them and the other one's more about you as the coach. And then immediately the other one, because it's almost about them, you build a bond and a connection straight away. And and so connection, if you like, is a really beautiful and happy byproduct of taking a more athlete-led approach to human learning. And, um, and you make a good point. I mean, your podcast is Combat Learning, right? So right. What, it's an important point to make here, right? Which is, this is about learning, right? So this approach is about learning. Now, often what happens is people model what they see in the elite realm. So they model techniques they see in the elite realm, and they're used to justify them their their application in a different, like more recreational or learning context. Let's say, uh, you know, if it's good enough for them, we'll do it over here. But you've got to understand that an elite athlete has done the learning, or at least has done a lot of learning already. Mm -hmm. So right. their context is much more about either training or refinement. Okay, mm. um, whereas. But a, but a more a less a, le, you know, a more novice athlete or a more developing athlete, they're learning, right? So you want to make it information. The the environment needs to be information rich, and it needs to involve you know you, you both. So if you want to be a trainer, be a trainer. That's fine, and use trainer techniques. But understand that you're a trainer. You're a, you're developing physical movement. That's it, or physical capability. But if you want to be a genuine skill uh, you know someone who's interested in skill and skillful movement then you're going to be much more in the learning space and that's the difference and so i think any pushback you get i think often is from people who are saying often oh, but i'm uh, you know they're what they're basically saying is i'm a trainer that's okay and that's cool and there's just don't dress yourself up as doing anything other than that 
And that's the big problem I have is that people think that they are, you know, they're doing the learning and the skill acquisition because they're getting people to repeat movement patterns. No, what you're doing is you're getting people to be able to repeat movement patterns. That's different from skill. Technique is different from skill. Ooh, that's a, that's a really good one. Technique is different from skill. That's going to, sp- that's going to make some heads spin. <laughs> somebody's, I, somebody's brain is going to break as soon as they listen to this podcast. <laughs> people, people think that technique and skill are the same thing. Well, so what, all you got to how do would is, you differentiate them uh, more in like an epithy skill way? Skill is a technique applied in context. Okay. Yeah. So that's the technical definition of skill in, in motor learning, right? Well, it, I mean, I, if you, generally speaking, if I ask a groomer coaches, they actually arrive at that conclusion, but they assume that if you just do enough technique stuff, you'll get skillful eventually yeah. to a degree, maybe, right? But the, 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 the approach to skillful performance, my view in, in, in sort of an ecological conception or any skill acquisition literature, to be yeah. honest, is actually becoming a skillful performer requires you to understand the combination of information and environment in order to be able to define action. Yeah. So it's like, you know, and, and so just technique isolation, te- isolated technique development is, you know, so skill is actually an emergent property based on environmental variables, mm-hmm. not something you preordain and inject into somebody by doing movement patterns over and over again. Right. So repetition does not lead to skill. Bernstein's quote is repetition without repetition. Right. So, but, but true, true. So, um, I think what I'm getting at is the sterile repetition does not lead to skill as you defined it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's going to be a, that's going to be a brain buster for, uh, so like you said that coaches naturally get to this point. I think a lot of people who coach, the sport aspect of martial art, yes, um, they they get a lot of in, they get they intuit a lot. There's another aspect in the especially in the traditional martial arts that is, uh, I don't know how to say this nicely. These are my people, so I don't care what they think. Um, <clears throat> they, there is an intellectual incest going on that is destroying their ability not only to understand these concepts, but to uh, notice them implicitly. And uh, I think with them, the idea that kicking a hundred times in the air doesn't lead to skill with that kick, uh, to them, that would be practically heresy, right? That, That would be like, are you, what? Are you kidding me? Like, how could you not, how could you repeat a kick a thousand times and not get skilled with that kick, but what they're 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 not thinking of skill in the right uh, from the right um, vantage point or from the right context, like skill in this meaning your ability to use it in a performance context. So if you wanted to, I think you mentioned uh, forms and kata earlier in the episode. That's that counts as that might count as skill from the vantage point or the uh, the the context of competitive kata, but not in the context yeah. of fighting, self-defense, sparring, anything that has to do with interacting with another human being. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. If, if, if we got, if, you know, doing a kata brilliantly, then yeah, 100%, do loads of them. <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah. Yeah. If, if it's something else, then you've got to do something else. Yeah. Yeah. So all of Mar- all of, tra- or not all of, most of traditional martial arts is razor focused on building better skill for kata performance, your basics, your one steps, yeah. all that stuff. And very little of it is built for building into the dynamic fighting, sparring, competition side of it. Um, and getting tradi- very, very traditional old school, especially old school guys to understand this is for me surprisingly difficult. We go round and round and round and we end up on the same, in the same place. And no matter how much I, I refine my language and the way I try to, to, they create their own language taxonomies too, which makes it a little, little difficult to unpack as well. And so no matter how I try to adjust my communication style and, and talk about some of the research and try to, try to talk about some of the concepts and the differences and things like that, it just, one or two of them will finally get it and we can have some, some fruitful conversation and the rest of them kind of just stay burrowed into the, uh, whatever it was their master taught them. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, uh, that, that's tough that, but that's why this, that's why I started this podcast is really to get other people from outside, uh, my direct community to come in and really weigh in on, um, this and, and get people more acquainted with the, with the literature of the, with the science and, and what's it's starting to say about, um, how we can better teach and learn. Um, but as yeah, a, I mean, and, and yeah. Go ahead. Every sport has its own cult. Every sport and every domain has its own culturally resilient beliefs. Right. And, and sort of working against some of those culturally resilient beliefs can be really, really difficult and really, really challenging. But it's kind of how human beings pro- progress. It's how we make progress. As, sure. You know, as a species, if you like. And the fact that we have be able to broadcast messages more readily is so powerful because previously people, this was done hand to mouth, you know, or mouth to mouth, face to face, mouth to mouth. Very, very little of this information was provided. So it's no surprise, you know, in the, what is a relatively new uh, medium of information sharing, which is facilitated by online, that people are now beginning to understand alternatives and not just take what they were taught and stick with what they were taught. But it takes a particular open mind and you have to recognize you're not going to reach everybody. So I, I'm happy with that. Uh, I just know that I get messages sort of every week of people saying to me, I had one come the other day. It was just somebody saying to me, look, not only have you helped me as a coach, but you've helped me as a father. Well, to be honest, it, you know, it's a challenge putting a podcast out as you probably know, but right. that for me is the reward that you seek, isn't it? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. My podcast is pretty small right now, but I've had a couple guys reach out and be like, man, uh, this is really helpful. And, um, <clears throat> like, re- thank you for putting this out. Like this is not, there's nothing like this out there. And that, I mean, that was the, that was the purpose. And then other guys that, that have been in this space, but have been isolated. They're like, wow, somebody out there is actually thinking about this and trying to put this out there. I thought I was the only one. Mm, and both of yeah. those for me are really validating because I thought I was the only one, right? I had to get my, I had to bug my friends to get in on this so I could talk to them <laughs> about it. And um, now I'm, I'm finding not, there's not a huge, there's not an army of them out there, but now I'm finding there are these, these guys. And some of them I've discovered on your podcast. I haven't talked to all of them, but uh, people that are in the martial arts that are thinking about this, that are doing research on this stuff and, and thinking about it and, and trying to figure out how it works in practice. And uh, that's been 
that's been, been the real magic of the podcast because when I was writing articles on this stuff, you know, a couple of years ago, really just starting to, to work my thoughts out on transitioning out of a traditional um, framework, you know, I didn't get any, hardly any engagement. And what I did get was super frustratingly negative. <laughs> so uh, the podcast has actually proved to be a much better medium for communicating. Um, yeah, you, get the, you can get the nuance across more readily, can't you? Yeah, I think people don't see me as a charlatan because they can hear my voice. Um, and uh, there's more that you can kind of, like you said, nuance. There's more stuff you can kind of add offhand really quickly that doesn't work very well if you want to be a, a, a skilled and concise writer. Um, there's just stuff you have to cut out so that people aren't hit with too much of a cognitive load. But, um, but, but yeah, it's been, it's proved to be a much better communication um, medium. Um, but yeah, um, there's, I want to be respect. We, we've been on here a long time. I want to be respectful of your time, but there's one more, there's one more thing I wanted to run by you. Um, that's more of me working through, uh, a, a, the constraints led approach, um, before we, before we wrap this up. And that is, I, I've, I've been thinking about, um, uh, Daniel Coyle's book, I think it's Daniel Coyle, uh, the talent code and, um, uh, feedback loops, right? And something he said was that one of the reasons that he observed why these talent hotbeds started producing such uh, incredibly talented athletes um, that dominated in competition was because they were able to build tighter feedback mechanisms that let um, that let the learners kind of try fail and and develop better solutions in quicker cycles. And um, I was trying to think about how we could do this with uh, my main, I do, I I practice a lot of martial arts. I do a lot of jujitsu, but um, my, my main style has always been Taekwondo. So for me, when I get back into coaching Taekwondo, I wanted to find a way to apply that to my Taekwondo training or to my students Taekwondo training. And, um, you mentioned before about the smaller octagon and I, I, I was, what I wanted to do was kind of, there's nothing out there like this. So I'd have to kind of build something of my own, but build kind of an adjustable ring that makes the ring smaller, but yeah. you can, but you can adjust it. So if you need, you want a little bit more range, you can adjust it out and, and give a little bit more range. And if you want um, to kind of, almost force like clinch work, working from the clinch and trying to move her in that area, you can bring it down in as, as, as close as you need to for that. And I was wondering if that would, um, and actually there's, so my rationale for this was that uh, there was actually a study, and I, and I don't remember the author on Taekwondo, that found that um, when, when Taekwondo athletes are training, sparring in the dojang, they, they stay a longer distance from their opponent. But when they're in competition and they need to score points to win, they're not just training, uh, they, stand, they tend to stay in a closer range. And uh, for me, that seems like if they're spending so much time outside of that range in training, that they're not really, their training is not optimized to help them navigate that range that they're in. So I wanted to find a way to 
uh, naturally change the environment such that they are forced to stay in that range without me yelling at them to stay in that range or without me um, doing something that's really too artificial. Uh, so where they don't have to think about, all they have to do is kind of use their their perception of, oh, I don't want to hit, you know, I don't want to hit the this barrier, so I need to stay here. So they're going to naturally adjust their, um, I was wondering if you, what you thought about that, like if that would be useful for solving the problem of staying within the range that might be more um, useful for them to be able to navigate in order to score points. Yeah, I mean, uh, using a, a constraint like space would be uh, definitely something that, you know, so for example, putting them in a really small ring where there's very little movement, uh, very little opportunity to move, apart from maybe a little bit of movement forward and backwards perhaps, and very little movement sideways might be an interesting way of doing that. And you, mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be like a proper ring necessarily with like, you know, yeah. resistance that it gives. It's just, you're just going to create a space artificially using, right. You know, whatever you've got around you, yeah. um, and just to say you've now got a spa or, or you know, kind of conditioned spa or whatever it might be in that little environment. That's one way. Mm-hmm. Another way might just be to, um, for example, create a rule, like a task rule, mm-hmm. whereby have to uh, maintain. Uh, you know, kind of maintain a some form of physical contact with each other of some kind, whatever it might be. You know, or it might be they're not allowed to go beyond a, a certain distance apart, whether it's a foot or whatever it is. And if you move outside of that realm from each other, then you are, you know, you lose a point. Or okay. to use areas areas on the ground, like you know, mark that. I mean, you know, kind of an Olympic taekwondo ring is circular, I believe. Is it not? It, it it's uh, it is. So it used to be rectangular. It is now more like an octagon i think okay. they changed the shape of it um but, but you could yeah it doesn't have natural barriers it's really easy just to step out of bounds so you could put markers on the ground of some kind that basically just constrain the space that you could operate within along similar lines or i was thinking potentially you could use like a like an elastic bungee as long as it wasn't too limiting in movement okay you know so you were actually physically tied to each other uh-huh. Um, and there's a degree of elasticity in terms of movement, but only so much. Uh, right. I'm only, I'm, these are just exploratory ideas that I'm throwing at you, but yeah, yeah. All, all of these are constraints in different ways, but fundamentally your, the key bit is not necessarily to change the space in order to bring them into closer contact as such. It's to get them to understand what's the difference. So what you'd want to also do is to extend out the space as well. So I often, yeah. quite often set up sessions where there's a very small pitch and there's a bigger pitch and then there's a bigger pitch and there's a smaller pitch. And yeah. I want them to understand what is it, what's the difference in terms of what you can do when you're in these different spaces. That's the fundamental learning moment there. Mm-hmm. So it's about them understanding the spatial difference by comparing bigger space versus smaller space, for example as right. opposed to just purely and simply fighting in a smaller space, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And I don't really want to keep them there because I, I want, there are, like, there's outside fighters and stuff like that. So I want yeah. people to be able to develop the skill of of using the entire ring if that's where they want to be. But 
there's also the the idea that they tend to stay closer in a match, so they're not as not quite as equipped to navigate that range. Maybe that's my concern. Um, yeah, so yeah, yeah. it's you know it's something I'm working through, obviously, and I'm not teaching right now, so I can't really test everything. But yeah, I definitely wanted to get your perspective on that, and that's um, that's really helpful. Really helpful. Uh, You're definitely on the right lines, though. Yeah, it, I think it would need a bit of tweaking to try and find the right blend. But once you got sure. it, you know you got it. Sure. Awesome. Well, <laughs> uh, thank you for coming on, man. This is uh, this has been a really, really information rich, really valuable episode, I think, and as I've really enjoyed it. And uh, no, I'm glad we could glad we could do it, and um, I'm uh, I'm glad, hopefully, that it'll maybe help some other people to maybe explore some alternative approaches. Um, yeah, be be really interested to uh, to hear how people get on to be honest so if uh, you know if they if they wanted to drop me a line or there's some questions that they pose i'll be happy to respond immediately but take me a little while but i'm happy to get people to uh come back to me on that if they want if they've got any thoughts yeah for sure um i'll put your information in the liner notes but if you wanted to tell people on the podcast right now where they can lead you uh get in contact with you go ahead yeah, so the show's all av- available on all good podcatchers, the talent, the talent Equation, and also the website is uh, thetalentequation.co.uk. And um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I am at Stu underscore arm. Um, and I'm not as active, but I definitely respond to messages and, um, and share the odd thing I see from time to time. I try not to get involved in uh, spats with people who are busily trying to... Uh, tell me that drills are a really essential part of any coaching <laughs> repertoire because I find that you just, you just get nowhere. So uh, it's much their own conclusions. And actually on that note, um, as I mentioned earlier on, I had a child come to say that she wanted to grab hold of the iPad, which is an alarm bell. So I had to go and find out what's going on because it means she's stuck to a screen. And also I've got to go out coaching this evening. So, All right. so um, uh, I'd, love to, I'd love to talk more, but um, I'm, um, yeah, I'm a little bit more tied up as concerned. All right. Well, I will let you go. Thanks again for coming on. No problem at all. All right. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Combat Learning Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. It really helps us out. Finally, this episode, including the intro music, is produced by Micah Peacock. Thanks in advance, and I'll see you on the next episode. 